Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we are delighted to welcome Professor Shital Kalantri to our podcast. Professor Kalantri is an expert in comparative law, business and human rights, feminist legal theory, and contract law. And today, our podcast will focus on the Indian Supreme Court, the world's largest court. I'm very excited about this topic, looking forward to learning more about it. So, uh, Sital, welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much for having me. To get things started, before we dive into the workings of, of the court and all of those things, we want to first learn a little bit more about you. Uh, I did no justice to your CV in my very brief introduction, so Please do fill us in. Tell us more about about your yourself, about the, the your career trajectory, and anything else we should know about you. So, um, my name is Sheetal Kalantri, and uh, I'm a uh, professor now at uh, Seattle University School of Law. I just recently moved here from Cornell Law School, where I've been teaching for 15 years. Uh, my work uh, involves looking at contract law, business and human rights, as well as um, gender rights. So I'm particularly excited about talking about India because I feel very few um, scholars in our legal community have uh, looked at India, have focused on India, have kind of studied and thought of it, um, there's, it's increasingly happening, but there's a, more of a focus on, on um, other countries in Asia, like China and Japan. So I had launched a center, which I'm bringing to Seattle U to try to um, uh, increase connections between students in both countries, between law schools, as well as practicing lawyers. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal background? Where, where did you grow up? Um, you know, maybe family background, why you decided to get into law and, and ultimately become a professor? So um, I was born in uh, in India in a very small town, and I moved here with at, at four, when I was four years of age, actually moved to Queens, New York, Jackson Heights, which is a lot of very big, you know, there's a, a big little India there. Um, and then I'd continue to grow up in Queens, but I maintained a lot of connections and going back to meet my grandparents. And um, that's how I learned to speak the language. And that, you know, the, that sort of duality in living in these two different worlds and these global contexts um, growing up in India it got me interested studying it from a scholarly perspective. And so when I, um, I also have, uh, I, I practiced, I did international law um, at corporate law firms, uh, Millbank Tweed and O'Melveny and Myers. 
Um, but I was craving more of, of looking at it from an academic perspective. And so I was able to join Cornell where I started a human rights clinic. And in that clinic, I um, worked on projects relating to India. So students of mine would, uh, for example, file um, litigation uh, along with local human rights organizations in India on issues like uh, the problem of, of labeling women witches and, and murdering them, or uh, issues related to surrogacy, where we filed a, bre- uh, um, a report in the parliament that they cited. Um, along the Over the course of 10, 12 years of taking students there, I've then also started to do a lot of writing. I have a lot of articles and books, and I'm currently working on a book on the Indian Supreme Court. Um, and I've published a book on immigration that looks at um, immigration from a global perspective. What impact does it have that we have people coming from India and how that impacts the shaping of our laws here? It's a very interesting background. One of my best friends growing up in a small town in Wisconsin uh, had a similar story where he, he and his family moved to the U.S., to New Jersey when he was quite young. And then we, we, I met him when we were in third grade and we grew up together all through high school and we're still, we still remain very good friends. So I, I, I never thought about our relationship being particularly international at that point. Um, but uh, as I've as I've grown up, I realize how special that was. So I, I have some some of my best friends I count uh, among the Indian population. And I, I think it's interesting what you said about uh, the focus, the global focus on China has been so heavy, and only now, you know, secondarily India, which I find quite bizarre, considering the the populace, the uh, you know the language affinity a lot of the Western world has with India, and and a lot of the political alignment as well. So it is. I, I think it's it's very interesting. No, I completely agree with you, and particularly from a legal perspective, where uh, the language is accessible to us in the United States, where we share a common law heritage, where um, also you know the democratic political systems are more parallel here than with uh, you know other countries. So let's talk for a minute about the court court hierarchy in India, because I I know some Indian lawyers. I haven't practiced in India. Uh, I'm very curious how the uh, how the court system is laid out. If it's very similar to what we find in the U.S., uh, U.K., um, can you tell us a little bit about how it's structured and whether there are specific courts that deal with certain jurisdictions, uh, you know, subject matter jurisdictions versus geographical jurisdictions. So one of the lar- biggest distinctions with the United States in um, as compared to Indian courts is that there's a unitary system. There isn't a separate state and court system in the sense that uh, the state courts here in the U.S. have jurisdiction over exclusively or over certain matters. But in India, it's a, a, a federal hierarchy where um, things, you know, even if it's just state proceedings are appealed to a court of a high court, it's called, in, um, and there's typically a high court per state. Um, some states have, uh, two states have one court, and then appeals go to, to the Supreme Court. Uh, another feature that I found interesting is that um, the Supreme Court of India actually has um, a jurisdiction, primary, original jurisdiction over certain matters. Uh, so if you are bringing a, a, a litigation arguing uh, in the name behalf of public interest, you potentially could go directly to the Supreme Court. Increasingly, they're denying such petitions and asking them to go to high courts. But that's, that's an interesting, um, I think, uh, uh, observation. And finally, what's increasing over time are, are sort of two trends. One is that um, there's a lot of there are tribunals that have been created where, as you say, like consumer 
uh, issues might go to specific tribunals and r- rather than through the official court system. Um, and finally, uh, through arbitration, a lot of companies are uh, avoiding courts altogether and just um, hiring uh, private arbitrators to to manage their disputes. So in addition to that original jurisdiction, I, I, I presume that well, probably the the bulk of the of the work that the that the Supreme Court does involves uh, appeals coming from I, I guess from the high courts. Uh, I had a, a a question, and and does require a, a bit of of reference to 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 our own uh, system here in the U.S. When when you look at our Supreme Court, right there mostly hearing appeals uh, from the federal uh, courts of appeal, as those courts are, are primarily organized on, on geographical lines, there, there are sometimes, at the very least, we could say um, stereotypes, but perhaps there's more to it than, than a stereotype, right? I mean, ultimately, the, the composition of these uh, appeals courts um, reflect the conditions of the, of the state's where they are based, so so there are certain expectations regarding what the decisions coming out of uh, a certain circuit, for example, the ninth, or some lawyers at least might might even smirk when they when they hear ninth circuit, right, just because of the the associations, what it evokes, and then other other uh, circuits as well. So going back to India, I wonder if there are certain flavors that decisions or, or, or rather than the decisions themselves right the, the 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 courts that are sending cases up uh to the supreme court are, are are there trends that can be discerned in terms of what the the judiciary is doing in different parts of the country uh, obviously india is a huge country very diverse different uh, parts of the country have had uh, different historical whole tracks. So I wonder if, is that something that is reflected in the, in the judicial systems of the, of the different states? And in turn, in terms of the, the kinds of cases that the Supreme Court is, is reviewing? I mean, is there, is there perhaps a, a sort of stereotypical matter coming out of, of a particular state as opposed to how things might be elsewhere in the country? So, uh, you know, you can't really um, have the parallel discussion uh, in India that you have here where uh, there were one um, sees certain Federal Court of Appeals with certain biases uh, as compared to others. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first reason is that um, since 1991, the appointment system of judges in India has not been through the political branches. And this is another oddity and unique feature of the Indian Supreme Court is that um, the Chief Justice of India, along with uh, of several of his colleagues, um, chooses, uh, nominates judges to the high courts and to the Supreme Court. And typically that's just sort of rubber stamped by the prime part president and, and prime minister. There's been conflicts. Uh, there's uh, the parliament passed a law to try to change this procedure um, and create a commission for judicial appointments. But then the Supreme Court rules that that's unconstitutional, that that law itself, because it impedes judicial autonomy. So that goes to say that it's in the U.S., um, you know, 
are even court of appeals appointments are pretty political and they parallel the uh, the party that's appointing the judges. So here it's, the, the judges are appointing themselves is not as much uh, uh, political inclinations. There's mostly many judges are liberal and they believe in the constitution is very, is a liberal constitution with broad equality rights for uh, women, for uh, minorities, for, for, for people from different castes. Uh, so, you know, there's the idea of, of, of uh, positive affirmative action where people from uh, minority communities are given access to uh, government um, jobs as well as uh, seat, seats, which is called reservations. So all this is baked into the Constitution and it's pretty enforced pretty broadly by all as much as possible by, by, by judges and, and how they're appointed. So so that distinguishes it. And that's why it's not such a polit- that's why decisions are not so political. The other is that there is greater turnover among the uh, high courts and the Supreme Court than in the United States. And that has to do with the fact that there's a retirement age in India. For high courts, it's 60. And for the Supreme Court, it's 65. So judges, unlike here, you know, are life tenured, they might spend 5, 20, 30 years on a court. So then there's more of a consistency established in the decision making. So I think with this constant turnover, it's hard to say that there's some consistent leaning one way or the other. And finally, I would say no one actually also knows this because unlike the our courts here, where the, the Indian Supreme Court court um, is issuing, you know, more like a thousand opinions a year. These high courts are dealing with a lot of cases as well. So it's hard to come up with a sort of sense of what these opinions are. And we are the first people, along with my co-authors, Aparna Chandra, who's a professor at the University National University Law School in Bangalore in India, and William Hubbard, who is um, a professor at the University of Chicago. We're the few, few people who've done a widespread empirical study uh, where we looked at every published decision of the Indian Supreme Court from 2010 to 2015, which amounted to uh, 5,000 cases. And so we have some trends that uh, I can share with you, but the trends are not uh, with respect to whether it was a liberal or a political or uh, or conservative decision, but more reversal rates. So we found some states' courts have been reversed, like some and, uh, high courts like the Sikkim and the Orissa and the Jharkhand high courts, which sometimes are thought of as sort of, you know, the less developed states. Uh, their high courts are more likely to be reversed by the Supreme Court than other state than other high courts like the Bombay and the Delhi High Court has, you know, um, a lower reversal rate. So that's one trend we we were able to identify. So let's talk a little bit about the trends that you saw. You, you know, the Indian Supreme Court is the world's largest common law court in terms of the population under its jurisdiction. But like you said, there has not been a lot of empirical research done about it. You've done work for the Indian Supreme Court. You've done this scholarly research on it. So what are the types of cases that commonly get heard? I mean, you said a thousand a year. Is that right? Decisions. You know, they have even more um, cases that are filed and they take a subset of those cases, uh, admitted a subset of those cases, and then a subset are published opinions. So when I say around a thousand, it's published, not, not unpublished opinions. Wow. And so are the what kind of what kind of litigation trends are you seeing in India then over uh, just let's just say by the type of case right are we hearing a lot of business mostly business disputes are they domestic business disputes international business disputes are these kind of family trends where we have uh, you know we're dealing with nonprofits and and family wealth I, I'm really curious what types of what types of cases there are out there 
So we categorized uh, all of these 5,000 cases in the period of 2010 to 2015, and we found that the 30% related to criminal matters. So the court, um, you know, takes these appeals from from uh, criminal defendants. Just you know, in, in again, it believes itself as a people's court, and so we found that it will hear. It, it wants to give voice. It wants to hear um, uh, the the individuals. It wants to be there for the individuals. It was envisioned as a, a court where you know even the common person can can get um, heard. The other is just civil matters um, is 10 percent. Land acquisition is like 6 percent. Constitutional matters are only 5 percent, which is interesting because unlike these sort of newer courts like South Africa and Colombia, there isn't a separate constitutional court. The Supreme Court is the constitutional court, um, but it only has heard 5 percent of cases uh, relating to that. Um, then it goes down the line, you know, to just uh, – you know, personal law matters, 0.3%, but the maj- good majority are sort of civil appeals, what's called service matters and criminal matters. So were there any trends that you saw that were surprising to you based on, uh, based on, uh, let me say other, other nations that are at similar, uh, similar developing status of India? I'm not going to say India is not a developed nation because I think a lot of people put it, put it in the developing nation bucket. I think it's, it's quite, uh, it's quite advanced. So let's, let's talk about India compared to any other countries. Are you, are you surprised by what you see in the, in the way, um, the types of cases that are heard by the Supreme court? So one other kind of institutional feature that I think it would be helpful for you and, and the audience to be aware of is that the court has a capacity of 34 judges, but by and large, it sits in um, uh, benches of two. So these um, kind of everyday matters are decided in short opinions, one or two page opinions. Most opinions are don't even have precedence cited to them. Uh, only these handful of constitutional opinions would have a larger bench, maybe maximum of seven, and they are doing a lot of citing of precedent. So, you know, what to me is surprising uh, about the court, uh, and and I think a problem, right, because it, it's been um, the whole Indian court system, if, if someone knows one thing about it, what they know is, boy, cases take a long time. Uh, you know, a case could take 10 years from from trial to, to, to Supreme Court, probably more. Um, and, you know, to, to deal with this kind of backlog, I think the answer the Supreme Court has said is, well, we're just going to need to add more judges and work faster. But I think reducing the number of cases they take would be, I think, extremely um, uh, beneficial because that would allow them to focus more on creating precedent rather than feeling like they have to hear every matter that comes before them. This also is another surprising feature. Many people who have ever gone to the Indian Supreme Court are like, where am I? Am I at a trial court? If you go two days a week on Mondays and Fridays is reserved for what they call admissions matters. And admissions are done orally. So the the, uh, petitioner is there talking to one judge, explaining why they're case should be admitted and that one judge is deciding. And I think that takes a lot of the court's time. So one could imagine that they do it more on the papers like the U.S. Supreme Court, or one could imagine that they streamline uh, that admissions process. It almost seems that, I mean, especially given India's 
size, right? I mean, it it, it almost seems as if there is space for for an added added layer in the in the court hierarchy. Is there is there any any talk of perhaps um, introducing? Some other layer. I mean, for purposes of, of discussion, you know, I guess one one idea would be you could have something equivalent to to, to circuits, right? Uh, but 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 it, it could be any other any other model. But I'm just wondering if there's any um, formal discussion of of maybe adding uh, rungs to the to, to the ladder to sort of um, help with this caseload. Yeah, that's a great question and observation that you made. It has been discussed uh, quite significantly with by the court itself as well as uh, outside of the court, which is to set up something called uh, National Court of Appeals uh, to decide uh, appeals cases uh, before they get to the, the court. Um that you know, uh, some of them argue that these cases. Um, would allow then the Supreme Court to turn its attention on constitutional matters. These National Court of Appeals could take these sort of everyday issues um, uh, while the Supreme Court uh, retains other powers. You know, and, and I think that's, you know, my view of that is that's definitely uh, possible. That's certainly not a, um, uh, it's, it could be worth trying, but the worry would be if the Supreme Court then still doesn't self-regulate themselves and then they want to take appeals from the National Court of Appeals, then you, you're back to the same situation. Turning to, to, to term limits, um, you mentioned earlier that there are age-based limits, which is something that notably we, we don't have here in the U.S. In, in, in our Supreme Court. And I think that it's fair to say that there are, there are many people in the U.S. probably think that would be a good idea, but India does give us uh, a practical or a concrete example of a country that has has instituted that. Based on your research and and your your observations more more generally, and perhaps even based on what perceptions are uh, among the population, I mean, what what lessons can we draw? Is there anything in India that would suggest that term limits are a bad idea or have they not been an issue or perhaps even been something positive? And I, I guess you mentioned earlier that there's greater, greater turnover. Looking at the, at the Indian example, what lessons could we draw here in the U.S. from the term limits that exist there? Yeah, so as you, everyone is aware, the um, the question about reforming our Supreme Court has taken center stage um, with the various retirements that we've had and and the hasty replacements. And you know, in the case of Justice Ginsburg, of course, um, you know her death uh, promulgated a, a, a replacement with another justice. So uh, Biden has set up this judicial commission to review two things: one, whether the court should be increased in size, and two, whether uh, there should be term limits added. The major conversation occurring, uh, the major proposal for reform, which there's also a House of Representatives bill um, on, uh, w- which parallels this, is uh, one where uh, there will be a 13-year term limit on court on, this, on, on Supreme Court justices, and they would retire every two years, so they would be staggered. Where and presidents, two pre- uh, a president would then each get one judge that he or she could appoint. 
I have argued that there's in doing that, the the Judicial Commission uh, should look at countries where, which have experience with term limits. Um, courts like the Colombian Constitutional Court, South African Court, they have term limits. The Indian Supreme Court doesn't have a term limit, but effectively, the retirement age creates a term limit. Increasingly, judges are appointed later in age. Um, we, I have found in our empirical study, and uh, as a result, they, they spend, at the Supreme Court at least, you know, four to five years on average. Some, some judges have spent like two days just on the Supreme Court as sort of like a, you know, a feather in their hat. The longest serving has sent, you know, a couple of years. Uh, so I think what this, I, I think there are a couple of results of, of a short period of time uh, that judges spend and the fact that they leave the court early. So in the U.S. context, while there's no age limits, it's still um, arguably that the presidents are going to want to appoint judges that are young enough so they can live out their term limit um, and they don't want to give another judge another president the opportunity to replace that 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 judge that they appointed. So when judges are appointed, when judges leave a court at young ages, and in, in that 65 now is young, when the Supreme when the Constitution was written in you know the late 1940s in India, that maybe wasn't young, um, with increasing life expectancies. So there's an empirical study done by uh, some scholars at the uh, University of, of Singapore that has found that there's some pre, uh, uh, that the that the judges of the Indian Supreme Court that are retiring um, farther from an election rather than closer to an election are more likely to rule for the government, and the employers of the government in, of the these judges are government the government. So unlike here, um, the, the the constitution bars retiring judges from going back into private practice. A lot of them actually go on to be arbitrators. That's increasingly a, a, a trend because it's very profitable. But some will be reappointed um, in other positions like human rights commissions or tribunals. So there's the risk of, of pandering. Then the other is the inconsistent precedence. So one another study has found that if uh, there were 13-year term limits, then Roe v. Wade, for example, would have would be overturned multiple times, overturned, put back again, overturned, you know, so uh, that creates a lot of policy problems, I think, around the country to have that kind of inconsistency. So those are some of the the lessons I think we can learn. Whether they would be applicable here, uh, whether they would actually happen here or not, um, is a different question. But I think it's worth looking at the practice of other countries when we're trying to reform our own Supreme Court. So let's talk about the representation of women on the Supreme Court and in the greater judiciary. It seems like representation is quite limited. So what thoughts do you have when, when you have that lower representation? The only where place to go is up, I guess, right? So can you tell us a little more about what, um, what's been happening lately and, and what's, what the discussions are surrounding the, those improvements? So one of the articles that we wrote uh, with these co-authors, uh, uh, William and Parnum, we looked at the diversity of judges at the Supreme Court. What we wanted to see was how those trends have changed over time. Uh, before 1991, the, it was an executive-led system. While the chief justice had to be consulted, the executive was uh, more responsible for appointments. And we found that what has remained the same between the two systems is that uh, the diversity of regional diversity 
so India, as you say, is a diverse country. But in order for the Supreme Court to gain credibility as a court that represents everyone, they've attempted to have regional diversity. They also try to have religious diversity. Religion has been very divisive in India over time. Uh, but the Supreme Court, when it appoints other justices, takes into account uh, whether there are enough Muslims, whether there's a Sikh. But the, the what they have not been concerned about significantly is gender diversity, at least not proportionally. Um, in of the 257 women, I mean, people, judges that have been on the court since 1950 when it was uh, created, only eight have been women, right? And many that uh, much of them, ha- many of them have been in, in, in the women have been appointed at least in the last several decades. So what currently there are three out of 34, which is, uh, you know, this the largest number of women that has ever been on the court. Sometimes there's zero, sometimes there's one. Um, but eight out of 257 is, you know, under 3%. Um, and, and, and three out of 34 is, is under 10%. So the proportional representation is not something that the court has been interested in, in getting to. Um, what is being hailed as uh, applauded is that the, um, there, India is going to have its first female chief justice. And how do we know that? Well, the chief justice is appointed uh, or chosen based on seniority. It's not appointed by the executive. And this is, again, for reasons of judicial independence, the Supreme Court feels it, this is, has to be the rule. It, the, ju- Supreme, the, the chief justice has to be is the senior most judge on the court. And uh, we know they know based on other judges retiring that there's the woman that they one woman that they appointed is, is likely to be. Uh, a chief justice. So while that's incredible and about time, uh, because she would be, you know, I I still think that's not nearly enough. And did you say that the chief justice, remind me again, how the, how those justices are chosen for the Supreme Court? Will, will this uh, female chief justice have uh, uncharacteristically large sway in, in helping to choose uh, upcoming, upcoming judges, or is that uh, out of her hands? Oh no, she, it's called the collegium. That is the the people who are nominating uh, other judges are. It's going to be she's going to be the one, you know, in charge of that. Um, and you know, along with uh, I think it's four colleagues, she would have the ability to choose uh, who, who who is nominated. So within her tenure uh, as chief justice, she'll have incredible powers to appoint it to appoint. Um, the other judges. She'll also, you know, one of the other things we've found in our our study is this uh, thing called master of the roster. So judges have chief justices appoint other judges to to different benches. So there could be the sort of run of the mill criminal bench, which may or may not make a difference, which may or may not be that dramatic, but it's the constitutional benches that are really important. Um, because they're deciding case situations such as, you know, will same sex um, uh, intimate behavior, is that constitutional or not? Uh, uh, is it, can women be prohibited from entering, um, you know, a Hindu religious site on the basis of religion? So these cases are significant uh, and the, the chief justice can handpick who 
he appoints to to these panels. And it turns out, it seems from some empirical data, initial research, that there it could be dispositive the the outcomes. Chief Justice, even if when he or she is on the he is on the panel, they rarely dissent from those panel decisions. So just to just to make sure uh, I understand what you're saying is that it, it's not only a matter of whether women or, or for that matter persons belonging to to any group are, are are appointed to the Supreme Court, but it also makes a difference. You know the, the specific bench to which they they are appointed is also critical. Is that is that a correct understanding? For the important you know policy political matters, the constitutional cases, yes, that does make a difference. It it also may make a difference to some criminal if you're criminal matters possibly because uh, you know some courts have known to always oppose you know death penalty cases, other courts have not. Um, but yes, generally, I think that's the idea. Outcomes can very much be manipulated by what judge is placed on what bench. Speaking of um, criminal courts, there, there's something else that I'm curious about, and it's and it's it's more it's more of a trial court uh, issue than a well, it is it is entirely a, a trial court issue, not not really a, a an appeals issue, but but I'm I'm interested in in the issue of juries. My understanding is that jury trials in India have largely been abolished, which is, I, I guess we could say it's contrary to the to the worldwide trend where we are seeing countries that he's historically have not had juries pick them up. And, and, and with India, it's it's sort of moving in the opposite direction. And it is, of course, for for a for a country rooted in the in the common law tradition, it's 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 uh, it's something something of interest for for sure. This might not be an area that you have you have researched, but to the extent that 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 you you are able to to comment on this in the same way that that we talked about term limits and the and the lessons that might exist there for us here in the U.S. Uh, what about this issue of juries? Just to be clear, I, I'm, I'm I'm certainly not going to discredit the institution of of, of the jury wholesale, but but I do think that certainly it, it shouldn't be. Something that is completely off limits, either in terms of of discussing how we how our, our judicial system develops, especially if we're talking about cases uh, involving misdemeanors and things 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 of that of that sort, right? I mean, obviously, there's there's always going to be a, a place for for the jury, in my view. But could you talk to this? I mean, perhaps uh, what drove India to to move away from from juries and and how is that experience playing out and is there is there something there that that we, we should be looking at here in the United States? Yeah, that's a great uh, question. Um, yeah, the, the the Indian court has abolished uh, jury trials uh, for pretty much everything, and you know, whether or not what impact that has had, it's not something that I have studied. Uh, and it's very hard, I think, to to probably study that. It was um, overturned that that system based on a one particular case. And in that particular case, it was a military officer that was accused of, of murdering the person with whom his wife, I think, was having an affair. And so this outcome led the court to believe that the juries can't particularly do a good job of deciding cases. 
Now, I, again, I don't know. I, I, this, this is something that I have not studied or looked at as to whether what problems are. I know that I, my, one of my former colleagues, Valerie Hans, has done a lot of work on juries. And you're right to say, you know, she's looking at helping juries and set up jury systems in Argentina where they didn't exist. Clearly, the jury should be representative of the person and also should represent the society, but uh, also be representative of the, of the person being tried. So I don't think there's any talk of jury system coming back. So your work at the India Center for Law and Justice, which you founded, is amazing to hear about. Um, understand from what you explained earlier that you're trying to promote engagement uh, across the ocean uh, and especially focused on human rights. Love to hear more about the program, about what you're seeing, the types of students that that tend to get engaged on on, on the U.S. side and the India side. Uh, some victories you've had. Uh, anything else? We, we'd love to hear you uh, toot your horn about about the, the great things that are happening there. So I think that in today's world, as you know, uh, as global lawyers and working at you know a top global law firm, that um, law is is a doesn't uh, respect national borders. And to be a great lawyer, I think you have to understand multiple concepts. So contexts. One of the programs that we launched together with the uh, the best law school in ranked, at least according to some rankings, is the Jindal Global Law School, is a dual degree program. And um, we're launching this at the Seattle uh, University Law School, where uh, somebody could get both an Indian and a U.S. law degree and save two years of time doing that. So we would accept one year from Jindal and they would accept one year from us. And I think this is fantastic because it saves uh, students two years of tuition. It um, uh, also trains them to be American lawyers. They take all of the first year courses. So it's not like an LLM where they can pick and choose whatever. You know, they're going through the rigorous boot camp of first year law. Um, and they can either work in the U.S. or leave or go back to India. So this is a program that I'm very excited about uh, training dual degree lawyers um, who can work at law firms in India representing uh, clients or work in Dubai or work globally, you know, but ha- but but be trained in in two of one, I think two of the most important um, uh, legal systems in, in the world. I've also um, done a huge series where I've had a number of comparative law podcasts and um, uh, uh, webinars. And our podcast is called Law in Common, where uh, actually in one of our my interns did a terrific job bringing together uh, law professors from India and the U.S. to discuss freedom of religion, to discuss privacy, to discuss um, you know reproductive rights from both countries. Um, another project that we've been doing is trying to summarize important Indian Supreme Court cases. These cases are interesting, but they're often thousands of pages long. Uh, th- these are, recall, the constitutional cases. You know, the run-of-the-mill cases are like one or two pages long. Um, and in order to make them more accessible, that's something that that we've done. Uh, we're also launching exchange programs. I have taken students to India. We did a report uh, on, you know, there was a big issue about citizenship rights in India due to a law that was passed. But even before that, in the state of Assam, the citizenship issues were were contested and pending. Uh, and we uh, went there, interviewed people and wrote a report about the problematic ways in which citizenship is being adjudicated. And that report's live and published. It's called Death by Paperwork. 
so those are some of the um, the things I've done through through the through, through the Indian system. My next goal is to organize a conference. You know, hopefully we can be in person soon, and to do a, a, a conference of scholars who study India and the U.S. as well as Indian law scholars and uh, publish some papers uh, from from that conference. Can you talk for a minute about human rights trends in India? You mentioned a little bit about freedom of religion. I know there's uh, certainly have been some uh, some big clashes lately. I'm especially concerned about uh, gender rights of women. Uh, are are the women? You know, I mean, the, and these are the cases that get uh, get publicized widely around the world, right? And these are are you know young girls and women who are accosted by groups of men. I want to know how is that going? What is the general consensus in India on on those cases and how they're how they're being handled and and the rights of those women? So I don't think one can uh, say that there's a general consensus, at least not one that I'm aware of. You know, people who are advocating for women and women's rights uh, continually are seeing horrific cases. In, in, you're talking about violence against women, right? There's there's the horrific violence against women, but there's also the everyday sexual harassment at work. There's, you know, structural discrimination. So there's multiple layers and types of discrimination that um, women face in India as well as the United States. Uh, which is not an easy, uncomplicated solution, uh, but you know, baked into the to the to the constitution, there is equality rights, and I think that there's a distinct there's a big gap between what the framers of the constitution had hoped for India and what we see. Clearly, there's progress been made over time. You know, women CEOs are probably more women CEOs in, in India, perhaps than even in the United States, and some studies have found actually at the law. In the legal profession, with uh, uh, since 1991, when there's liberalization and there's increasingly uh, larger corporate law firms, uh, there's actually more women who have been making it to higher ranks and partners than than you would expect. Uh, whereas in the U.S., it's been stagnant. You know, the top law firms have not increased the number of women partners uh, in the last 25 years. It's only been quarter of the women are partners for the last 25 years. So it, it, it's a complicated, you know, there's people at the high levels, women that have more opportunities who have support of their families for the kids who have support of domestic helpers and servants, um, you know, lower levels, people are struggling for, for different things. When we talk about certain countries that have uh, human rights issues, as, as we've described, in many cases, these countries are not democratic. And it can seem at least like an easy prescription to say, well, look, uh, they need to become more democratic and then we'll see progress. Now, with India, part of what is jumping out to me at the moment is the fact that, well, this this is a, a democratic country. What's the, what's the missing link here, right? Because one would expect that uh, at least at the theoretical level where you, where, where you, where you have democracy, um, the the people will be represented, and 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 that representation will will be at least again in theory will will reflect the the um, characteristics of the population and 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 represent the different sectors. Considering that India is already far ahead of other countries in the sense that it already does have these democratic foundations, what, what do you think is necessary to? fulfill that democratic vision for all of, of, of India's citizens? Well, if I could answer that, I'd probably win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
you know, in, in fairness, it's it's a ch- difficult and challenging question. Um, there are a lot of barriers to fulfilling um, to fulfilling the rights that are embedded in the Constitution, that are embedded in the vision of India, and and, and there are just so many different. You know, economically, social social inequality is enormous. Uh, within India, the, the the rich have only gotten richer through economic growth and liberalization, and it hasn't kept up for the poor and in the rural, rural villages. Um, it's it's like living in two different countries. Um, there's continued. I've I've studied the the decrease uh, in in the, the female population because of sex selection, and um, and and that I think the the population shifts there are having impact on 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 violence and and other women's rights that I think have yet to really be documented and, and observed uh, in a in a in a thorough way and and I think the government isn't necessarily focused on that so you know COVID has just made it all um, worse for for many people um, and create you know it, it exacerbated the inequalities so I think we have a lot of challenges as we re- as we move, uh, hopefully, out of uh, out of COVID, and and maybe we can reimagine a world um, that we want to live in, and 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 reimagine a, a, a new world, and maybe we can reset and and try to reach it uh, uh, in a way that um, that we couldn't before. Ashital, we're nearing the end of our time together, which is unfortunate, but. Uh, we certainly have enjoyed having you with us. We always love to end our podcast with recommendations for our audience to go deeper into the topic or just to know what's on our minds lately that we think has been uh, influential to us in some way. So we'll start with you and then we'll go to Fred and me with our recommendations. So for people who are interested in learning about, you know, the lives of sort of the everyday person in India, the person, the large groups of people in cities, you know, live in, uh, are squatters. They live in slums. Uh, and there's multiple layers of, of inequalities that they face. So one book that is an older book that I've liked is called The Beyond the, the Beautiful Forevers by, by Catherine Boo. Um, it takes place in a um, Darvi, which is a, the, one of the biggest slums in Bombay. The other one um, movie I would recommend, I know everyone, uh, Bollywood is a big industry, but and there's a lot of, it's patchy though, with some good and some bad, is Gully Boy, which is also set in a, in a, in a, uh, in, in a slum. And it's a, really a kind of a story about rising from, uh, and the hip hop scene and, and a, a person, rise, you know, based on a true story of, uh, of how they of how the the, the hip hop scene developed in India, uh, but gives you also a visual insight into how people how the common or the poor person lives. Those are great recommendations. Thank you, Fred. What do you have for us today? Well, my recommendation today is squarely in the entertainment bucket. I finally got around to The Americans, which is a a, a TV series. And it's um, presumably loosely based on these deep cover operatives that the Soviet Union had operating in, in the U.S. and other countries during during the Cold War. There, there is some element of truth to it. Um, there, there were basically sleeper agents that that were trained to to, to blend in 
the show is really well done. Uh, surely there are some exaggerations there in terms of, of what the, the world of espionage, a, a little sexier than it, than it, than it probably is in, in, in real life. But overall, really, really well done. And just to try to make it a little bit of, of a highbrow uh, or pretend it's a highbrow recommendation, this is taking place in the in the eighties, so there are a lot of references to historical events and and historical uh, figures. So, in addition to being uh, highly entertaining, it's um, it, it's also uh, somewhat uh, educational, and um, the the acting in particular, I find it to be excellent, and and, and not just the um, the acting, but also the way in which they, they recreate. The world of the '80s, which you know is, is is a world that I remember, so it brings back memories. It shows that I'm getting old enough to the point where they're making you know shows about historical eras that I already experienced. But but it's been an enjoyable experience uh, in that regard. So uh, the Americans, um, I watch it on Amazon Prime. And Jonathan, what do you have for us? I have two recommendations today. One is from a, a prior guest that I, I thought Chital would be interested in knowing about. Uh, her name is Valerie Hudson. She's a, a professor at, uh, I can't remember the university in Texas, but she, her focus is on on women and the physical security of women and national security, all, all overlapping all those all those areas. And so one project that she works on, it's called the Women's Stats Project, and that's at womanstats.org. And uh, there, a lot of it's all data driven, um, and the analysis is about how how secure women are based on a, a variety of factors. So that's a very interesting resource. If uh, for those of, those of you who weren't around in the early days uh, of our podcast, the second recommendation I have is the Council on Foundations has country notes, and uh, this website is designed for families, individuals who want to. Uh, invest to help a certain part of the world, certain uh, areas, to get a feel for how nonprofits and other types of uh, foundations are treated in those jurisdictions. Um, and so it, that's available. Uh, a few Google Council of Foundations will we'll include the link as well. But I found the country notes are very deep, uh, 20 to 30 pages on the various types of nonprofit entities, how they're treated, um, tax treatment wise, uh, very, very deep. So if you're interested in that in any way in nonprofits work around the world, uh, that's a great resource. And with that, Chital, we want to thank you so much for being with us today. Again, it was uh, fascinating and uh, enlightening, and we're certainly happy to hear about the work you're doing. It was great talking to you, Fred and Jonathan. Thank you. Global Law and Business is a production of Harris Bricken. The team includes Madeline Williams and Michaela Moore. The music is composed by Steven Schmidt. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review there. We like to hear what you think of the show, and it helps new listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Thank you.